coach. Let's find out if you're ready for love. Here's your marvelous host, Nikki Lee. Hello, and welcome to Ready for Love Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. This evening, we're going to talk about mindfulness. And we're going to talk to the author of Turning Me to We, The Act of Partnering with Mindfulness. That's Dr. Beth Daenerys. Now, mindfulness, we've talked about that several times. I've had a couple shows about that specifically. And we've dealt, kind of delved into that. And Dr. Beth is going to give us some interesting insights in, into that. And we're going to talk about mindfulness and about integrating mind and body and spirit and how that can work in all of our relationships, um, our family relationships, our work relationships, our intimate partner relationships, and just and how how, you know, once we figure it out in one relationship, it works in all of our relationships. Um, we're also going to talk about conflict, um, how to, um, you know, whether it be a, a survivor or a victim, we're going to talk about um, shifting our perspective. You know, we can we can talk to somebody and we can each have our own point of view about something and our own perspective. And even though we can disagree completely, we can both be right because we each have our own perspective about things. And so it's, and we're going to talk about codependency and interdependency and whether they're the same thing or whether they're different. So it's going to be an interesting show. We're going to have an interesting conversation about, like I said, quite a few very interesting things. And we are going to have this conversation with my guests who is Dr. Beth Gineris. She holds three graduate degrees, one in business, one in counseling, and oriental medicine. I, I would love to do an entire show just on that. <laughs> she spent 20 years as a psychotherapist, over 14 as a strategic management consultant, eight years as an acupuncturist. Now, she specializes in East-West mind-body-spirit integrated training to offer solutions-oriented life coaching, parenting skills, relationship development, and mindfulness techniques. This all allows her to bring a unique blend of complementary methodologies and techniques into her practices with clients and her writings. She's devoted to providing supportive, solution-focused teachings that allow people to live a more harmonious and happy life. And isn't that what all of us want? And she is the author of Turning No to On, the Art of Parenting with Mindfulness, and Turning Me to We, The Art of Partnering with Mindfulness. Dr. Beth, it's awesome to have you with me today. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Like I said, I, I, I could come up with questions just, just that I have about oriental medicine, but we'll talk about, some, we'll talk about relationships today. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, let me see. You know, transforming relationships. And, and what I really liked is, as I was reading over some of the information, is that it, a focus that you do that I do also is helping people understand that, that there's things they can do to help every relationship in their life, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's intimate relationships, and whether it's people that you work with. You know, once you learn the skills, the techniques, 
and, and mindset in a lot of ways, it changes everything about how you interact with people. So I'm really looking forward to sharing some great information with the listeners. Is there, is there any kind of little um, uh, introductory sort of thing that you'd like to tell the, the listeners about yourself? Well, I sort of came to this in a, in a funny way. I I started out as a therapist, and then I became aware that some of what doesn't work in relationship doesn't work in corporations. So I went back and I got a business degree and I started to talk about how um, the little communities in corporations or at business or even small businesses and family businesses, how they have communication problems and power differential just like relationships. And then I realized that people didn't change. They change their thinking sometimes, but that their whole being. So I recognized this whole spiritual component and um, physical component, and then I went back and I studied even more of the Eastern medicine and the and the Oriental medicine. And so, it's this long process, which I'm sure you know. We are using our own life experiences, our experiences with our clients and our patients, to develop these skills and then reshare with whoever comes in next, right? And with the larger community. So, it's an ongoing learning process. Very exciting. I mean, that's like when, when I was ready to um, create my, my coaching blog. I said, I, I need to start getting this stuff out there. And, and I thought and thought and thought, what in the world am I going to call it that really represents what I'm doing? And what I did is I came up with lovecoachjourney.com. And the reason I did that is I figured, I figured the training was the first big step. That was the big step on the journey. But the journey didn't end when I finished the training and I got my certification because there's so many topics I want to keep learning about. And, and you know, seeing the, the changes in, in me personally was a big motivator for me. And every every person I interview and every person, client that I work with, all of it's part of the journey. And it's for, I mean, and the journey continues and I keep learning and growing and it just, it's fantastic. And being able to share everything, that was a big part of the reason for the radio show is because there's always new things we're, we're discovering, and I'm like, you know, this is a way to share new stuff with people every week. <laughs> but um, it's it's been interesting; it really has. And I completely agree that our our life experiences are such a big part of it. It's like I know with like other love coaches, I know, you know, we we all do relationship coaching, but it's like each one of us, whatever resonated with us the most from our experiences, are pretty much the focus we have, which is is great. And then we can. You know, refer people to other other people who have a, a specific niche that might be better for them. But it's it's one of these, and it sounds so corny to some people, but it's, it's like, you know, I saw the change in me, and I felt the change, and I had to share it with somebody else. It's kind of the whole what what made me decide to finish the, the training and to keep pursuing the coaching and the writing about it and all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, I mean... Uh, we are all, um, I think that somebody calls about it points of light, and as we each brighten our light that we shine, we're making the planet lighter. We're really up-leveling consciousness, and that's that's what we want to do. We, we want to up-level our own consciousness so that we can see more holistically and be able to be in forgiveness and compassion and yet be very strong internally, and we want to help the whole world kind of get stronger. We can communicate better between countries between um, political parties, et cetera, right? We want everything to be more positive. Yeah, that is something we really needed this month. <laughs> oh, let me see. All right. 
So let's start off, because I know the word mindfulness is probably going to come up a lot in the conversation. What it is and how do you define mindfulness? So mindfulness is, um, it seems like it's a very Eastern word in the sense that it's from Buddhism. Uh, the, the Buddhists and the, and, and people who follow the Hindu religion, um, they use this concept of mindfulness as mindful meditation where you sit quietly and you go within and you get yourself into a centered space so that you can see more holistically. And the idea is to identify whatever you're working on or whatever you're looking at within the center of the whole picture. And in, in Western medicine, especially in psychology, They've used the concept of mindfulness for many, many, many years. They just never used that term. They called it um, uh, being more centered or they talked about um, thinking about things in a more holistic fashion, but they didn't really use the word mindfulness. And so I've integrated these ideas from Western medicine and from Eastern medicine, and I use some of these ideas when I'm talking with families. But mostly what we're talking about is just we, we're changing our paradigm and our perspective. So we're changing the way we look at things. We're looking at it from an inverted perspective or from the other side rather than getting stuck in one way of seeing everything, which can be very tunnel vision and create some problems for us. You know, in any relationship, like I said, whether it's, it's with family members or work or, or intimate partner or whatever, just stopping and looking from it from their perspective is so beneficial. Because no matter how close we are to somebody, we do have a different perspective from what they do, you know, to help us to see what they're thinking, how they're feeling, especially especially if there's an argument or disagreement sometimes, because it, it can be, but, but I know I'm right. Well, maybe not. <laughs> so think about well, their perspective. Sure. I mean, really, we are right from our own perspective. We're all right from our own perspective. I like to use this picture of... Um, that that looks like a bunny from one, if you look at it where it's facing to the right, it looks like a bunny. But if you look at it when it's facing to the left, it looks like a duck. And I use that as my example, that both people are actually quite right from their own perspective. The issue is, is it is it universally the only perspective? And oftentimes it's not because our picture of the world, and I use this big word paradigm, but what I mean is the way in which we see the world our viewpoint is a function of where we were raised, what kind of religion we belong to, what historical groups we belong to, um, experiences in our life, things that happened to us, um, what we observed in our parents and in our siblings and in our friends. And so it's very personal. So we all have our own perspectives. And it's very important to see where our perspectives connect when we're talking about relationship, because then we can really work on how we can agree. Right. Very true. Now, your book is called Turning Me to We, The Art of Partnering with Mindfulness. What, what does turning from me to we mean? So when I came up with these, um, these titles, I came up with, uh, I've written a couple of books. One was called Turning No to On, The Art of Parenting with Mindfulness. And I was talking about um, moving children from that no-stopped position um, to a yes or from an off position, like they're not interested or apathetic to an on position. But what I liked about the no to on is how it's reflective, right? When you have no 
and you see the reflection of that is the on, right? And the same with turning me to we. Me is the M, which would reflect the W, me to we. And I was going for this concept of reflection because I wanted people to understand that oftentimes what's happening in their relationships, what's happening in their life, or how they can change it is completely within themselves. They really do have so much power. So if they're willing to look within and understand how what's happening is a reflection of what's going on within them, they've got so much more power. Additionally, with the me to we, I was going from people being more um, competitive and narcissistic, which is what I talk about when I talk about the me, I, and we, which we can talk about together if you'd like, um, into being more collaborative and connecting, which is more the we. So I have it linearly me, I, we, and I also have it in this kind of reflective component of looking within to make those changes. Interesting. Interesting. I like that. Okay. Yeah, I was I was noticing in, in some of the notes about, you know, shifting from competitive to collaborative. I love that because there's, you know, and it, this is something that, that I think authors actually get a lot more than a lot of other people, and I was fascinated to, to find this as I was networking with more and more online, is the, the kind of we're all in it together kind of attitude. <laughs> you know, there's so many people that have a product or service they're trying to sell that just see everybody as competition, but authors are really good about jumping in and helping each other to promote one another. You know, I mean, we're, we're getting our name out there when we do it, but pitching in and working together and seeing how they can they can all kind of join forces, you know, to, to help each other and, and that sort of thing, which you just don't find with everybody, especially in business. I agree. And I, I feel like this is kind of the exciting element of these social networking situations where we connect with people who are like-minded on Twitter or, or Facebook or LinkedIn or even what you and I are doing now where we have, we're like-minded people. We have different components that we're dealing with, but we're like-minded. And then those people who are coming to listen are like-minded and we can all sort of elevate our consciousness. And you know how I keep saying this concept of elevating consciousness. I, I really am a spirit, body, mind person. I'm not just a mind person. It's not just how you think about things. It's how you are in the world, that integrative, not the integrative, that um, it is integrative, but what I was going for is how you can be really in integrity and say and do the same thing, be congruent. And I think what we've done for the last few hundred years, maybe a few thousand years, is do this thing where we pay attention to limited resources. So I'm going to compete with you because there's only so much money out there. So I need my book to sell. So I have to step on you to get to that place. Whereas the shift that I think happened in 2012 and, and just beyond before that, this major change that's happening is how about if we all elevate? We don't see that there's limited resources. We see that we can all raise up. And wouldn't that be great? And that we are all really connected to each other. So let's assist each other rather than be against each other. Well, and you know, with each of us having our own life experiences, our own perspective, we each bring something different from the te- to the table. Even even if you have ten people and we all have the same basic theories, philosophies, and, and this sort of thing, we're going to come at it from a different perspective. We're going to come at it in a different way. And the thing is, no matter how wonderful what you have to say is, no matter how wonderful what I have to say is, and of course they're both wonderful, <laughs> you know, we're going to resonate with different people because they need to hear the message in a different way. So there's there's 
so much to be gained. And that's like, I, I had people say, well, but you're a coach. Why do I want to be on your show? We're competitors. It's like, no, we don't have to be. You know, we can mm-hmm. both share our our thoughts, our perspective, and, you know, that's sort of a, a thing. And we're going to resonate with different people, may resonate with the same people, but they're getting different ideas. I'm very much a, you know, out of the box and open the mind kind of person because there's so much, so much more to learn about everything. And that was my big thing with the Internet. Somebody said to me, but it's like having your own library, like in your home. I'm like, oh, man, (laughs) I've got to do this. So, you know, the the unlimited research your fingertips. It is true. And we have, you know, language is extremely personal. We don't really realize how personal language is. Most of the arguments that happen with between couples or confusion that happens is, in business is that people actually misunderstand the communication. And so what you're, what you're saying right now is completely in line with that. The language that you're going to use to talk about probably the same things I'm talking about and the language that I'm going to use to talk about probably the same things you're talking about will indeed mean more to different people, and that's that resonance. And so as many people as we can talking about this is the best possible thing. So how do you think, since we're talking about people being open-minded and getting the message and communicating and all that, how do you think people become locked or, or blocked into this space where they just, can't connect and they've got communication patterns that they use and they're, they're just, they just can't communicate with the other person. Well, some of it is um, what we just talked about in terms of this open-mindedness or lack of open-mindedness. We um, have a tendency, so as humans, the world is really complex and we have many things we have to do at once. So things that can be created as habits so you're automatically doing them is really, really smart thing. And so our brain will do that. It will create habits. You see this, it means that. Oh, red, a shaped red thing means stop. You know, they, our brains do that. We have these automatic reactions to simplify how we move through the world. Sometimes what happens is we create an automatic reaction because of a relationship that we were in that is very helpful for that one relationship that we were in, but now we start to react like that in every relationship. And that can get us stuck in sort of what I call a habit reaction patterning or a survivor scenario or a victim scenario or some scenario that says, when something is happening in this way, I have to act this way. And it's automatic. So rather than looking at the situation and staying in the present moment, seeing the other person more in the now as the whole person they are, we react to them. And that's how we can get stuck in these sort of habits of reacting. And oftentimes, um, the way out is to sort of stop that and try to see what's really going on. And that's where that whole mindfulness stuff comes in. Interesting. Interesting. You know, I was I was making some notes about what I want to talk about. And one of the things that is a big focus with me, and I actually have an entire 12-part program about this, is about looking at your own personal development first. And that, that goes with, with what you were saying is 
as far as changing from me to we, and, and a lot of it comes from inside ourselves. So why, why do you feel it's important for people to look and to make their own personal development changes first? Well, I think I agree with you, and it's so cool that you have a, a big program like that to really assist people stepwise, step by step, to really make those internal shifts. Because I think it's scary to make those shifts. Um, it's a big deal because when babies are born, their brain is not completely developed, and so most of how we learn how to be in the world is through what we experience in our lives, what we're taught from the groups that we're connected to, so they could be religious groups or school groups or friendship groups or parenting, you know, how our parents were, and then how we resolve Eric Erickson's various psychosocial stages, which children do as they develop. And so the reason that we can need to look at our personal development is that where that goes awry is usually when we're having trouble in relationships. Something didn't quite work right or we had some sort of injury or trauma or we learned something that isn't really universally translatable. You can't really necessarily use it everywhere. It just affect, it was just affected in that one relationship. And so if we can go within and understand where things maybe went awry or what our belief systems are that we may want to shift, then it allows us to be much more open-minded and much more able to collaboratively create a relationship that's mutually satisfying. Ah, mutually satisfying. I like that too. <laughs> you know, something about there. There's like there's some people you talk to, and and one of the first things they say is is I want to see my partner happy. What do I need to do to make them happy? And the thing is, if, if you take if if they can both have that mentality. And then, you know, we're focused on making the other person happy. And it's amazing how making a person you care about happy can make you so happy yourself. You know, even even if maybe you're not getting exactly what you think you need at the moment, there's just a certain happiness and pleasure that comes from seeing somebody that you care about happy. And especially when you know that you did something to make it that way. Kind of like the, the opposite is when you, you know you've done something that made the person unhappy. <laughs> so. It's true. It's true. Although, you know, I think that we do have, um, uh, we have different ways of showing how we care about each other. And so sometimes we have to learn that somebody is showing us love. It just doesn't feel loving to us. And then we might want to communicate to them. So if you do it this way, it feels more loving. And when you do it this way, even though you're attempting to show me love, it doesn't feel very loving. And those kind of conversations are super important, right, to increase that mutual satisfaction. Um, the more that we feel happy when we're in relationship, the more likely we will um, create happiness with our partners. And we can negotiate those things that don't matter so much, especially if they do make the other one happy. It's just that we don't want to sell ourselves out when we're trying to make someone happy, right? That's that codependent sense. Very true. Kind of like forgetting who we are. I, I have a real issue with people that, that think or act like you have to completely, um, what's the right word? Uh, you have to be so completely submerged in a relationship that who you are is a non-issue at that point. It's like, 
Mm. Well, I mean, you, you may feel differently about that. No, I think I, I agree with you. So when I was talking about earlier when I talked about the me, I, and we, kind of that linear concept of moving from me through I to we, that kind of relationship that you just described where they're, they're just completely involved with each other and it's almost like it's two halves that make one whole, which is somewhat codependent. Both kind of dependent relationships they actually are not very mutually satisfying. The individuals are always waiting for the next moment when they have to be proving their love or is the person still approving of them. And it doesn't seem like they're able to really develop a sense of individual self. So we is where there are two holes, two whole people, so I'm talking about W-H-O-L-E, two holes, that overlap, kind of like a Venn diagram, where there's that center part, which is really the couple or the partnership, and then each person has also got things that really matter to them that they're really pursuing. And that's really the most long-standing. Those are the relationships that will really last a very long time because individuals can grow and change, and their relationship can grow and change, but they can stay together. It was actually a big conversation about that on uh, the talk a couple of weeks ago about whether whether it's right <clears throat> or healthy to expect everything you need to fulfill you as a person from your partner. And, and you know, I think it's unrealistic. Don't you feel it's unrealistic to expect that? Yes, I do. I do. But I mean, there are people that feel that way. That they're like, well, I married this person and we're together, and and so they need to feel. Every need that I have, that's, that's, that's putting an unbelievable pressure on that person that one person can't do. And, and the thing is, if, I was thinking if, if you're doing that, you've only got one other perspective that's, that's coming into your life to, to influence you. Now, turn that around to having, you know, five, six, seven, ten people that are all contributing in some way to the needs that you have in your life. And whether it's, you know, it, I'm not talking emotional needs or that sort of thing, but, but there's just various things that each of us needs in our life. And if that comes from different people, think of the how we're expanding our horizons and expanding the things that we're opening ourselves up to. It just seems like that's so much more healthy. I'm not um, saying that yeah, anybody I, into your life. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I, I've... Um, I find that people who need everything from their partner get to be enmeshed and they really do become um, uh, overly, there, there's a power issue in play that's not very healthy. Um, that's and, and I say that only because of what I observe in couples. The couples that last a very long time that seem to do very well have certain have-to-haves that they need to have in their partner. Um, and then the things that where their partner don't meet some of their needs, they get that outside of the relationship, but not important aspects of a primary relationship, just other things. Like, let's say I'm super creative and my partner isn't. Well, I might find somebody else to go and do painting with. I don't have to go painting with my partner. Um, Or I really like to do exercise and my partner doesn't. Well, fine. There's somebody else I can do that with. Um, It's more about... How do we keep growing and yet stay strongly connected to our primary relationship? That's it. And the thing is, a relationship is going to change and hopefully grow over time. And both people 
or, or you know, for, for, you know, other relationships, any person that's involved is going to have to be able to grow and change. And it, like I said, it just, the, the mentality yeah. that I've seen with some people that, that you have to be 100% with, with a partner all the time, totally in sync, everything you need comes from that person. That just, like I said, that just strikes me as just so unhealthy. And you're just, you're limiting both of you in so many ways. Right. I, yeah, I agree with you. I noticed that one of the things that when I looked at your site, you talked about being a master sexpert. And when I work with individuals who are not in the same place sexually, you know, one person may be much more interested in having sex daily, many times a day, and the other person is less interested and more interested in being close or doing other kinds of connecting things. I like to talk with the couple about what is the issue that, uh, who has the strongest level of need and where are you crossing a boundary of self? So if I feel traumatized by someone needing to have more sex with me, then I might set the limit space. I would have to figure out ways to be able to help my partner meet his or her needs, but I would maybe I would be a limiting factor in terms of when I start to feel accosted, right? Whereas the other person, if that person really feels like their partner is just not wanting to have sex ever, then then you have to come back and say to the person who just doesn't want to be sexual at all, well, how are you going to meet this person's needs? If the relationship is going to continue, the people are going to stay together, you know. So it's always about looking to see who's going to be most harmed, right? And so it isn't that we can meet every single one of the needs of our partners. It's more about how do we mindfully, healthfully look at how can we negotiate, not compromise, but negotiate a space where we agree on how love can look for the two of us. Very good. Yeah, um, libidos is, is one of those topics that, that I really want to do more research on and, and put information out there because there's so many people that are dealing with that, well, that, that have that situation going on in their relationship and, and just don't know how to, to handle it. <clears throat> but I, I, I like what you said. That's that's very good. See, all these neat little notes I make when I'm doing these shows. <laughs> it's fun, right? We can help each other. See, see, listeners, it's okay to take notes. <laughs> and to go back and listen to the show again. I do that sometimes, too. I'm like, wait a minute, I missed something. Oh. So, what do you think, um, and we've kind of, kind of talked about this as far as codependent. Well, I'll tell you what. Interdependent relations is one of the things that, that is, is listed on the information that I was looking up for you. Do you see codependent? Because I, I think a lot of people understand the concept of a codependent relationship. Do you see codependent and interdependent as the same thing, or are they different, and if so, how? They're very different. So codependency is the opposite of interdependency. And, and the way in which I interpret those two words and I work with that, those ideas is that I, I think of healthy relationships as being people who have really healthy boundaries, a really strong sense of inner security, and really a good sense of empathy. Um, individuals who are codependent um, cannot usually see the other point of view or, especially if they're narcissistic, 
or they they just live the other person's point of view. They never bring themselves into the picture. And that's that concept is two halves that make a whole. And and they generally, people who are codependent, don't have boundaries between self. I am you and you are me, which is an unhealthy relationship. Even if people think that's what they want, that would go back to, well, that's because maybe as you were being raised, that's what somebody told you love was. But that is actually not healthy because I am me and you are you. And when we're going to be interdependent, I can depend on you and you can depend on me. But it isn't always one way or the other. And we have flexible boundaries. I can see where you end and I begin. I can see where I end and you begin. We have these boundaries and they're flexible. I can I can pay the bills for six months while you're sick, but I can't take care of you for the rest of your life, you know, unless there's some specific reason that that's the case. Um, and so they're very different, codependent and interdependent. And so the interdependent picture, if you're going to look for a visual, are those two circles that overlap, and in the center is the couple, and on either side um, are each individual. Um, I like that you have, have all the visuals. That's, that's good. I, I think visuals help, right? I really do. I think yes. they're just so helpful. So independent relationships, you're going to kind of think those are really healthy, but actually, I don't mean you. I mean people in the world might think those are really healthy, but and they are. They're certainly more healthy than codependent relationships because there's a, a boundary around a self. But in those instances, individuals don't choose to use their empathy. Their empathy. And they don't have inner security. They're really afraid of being engulfed or swallowed by the other person. So they don't share very well. They're not very good at assisting others. In the first one, the codependent style, which is what I call the me style of relationship, that's that two halves that make a whole. Those people have a hard time saying no. No, you can't use all of the money in my bank account. I need to save some of that in case I lose my job. No, you can't use all of my energy for your thing. I have to keep some of it for me. So they don't have a good ability to say that. And then people in the I-style relationship, which is what I call that independent style, they don't say yes very well. They're not very good at sharing. They do lots of negotiation. Okay, I'll help you with this, but then you need to help me with that later. They're not interdependent where we're a family, we're a group, and Sometimes the energy goes here and sometimes it goes there and I keep developing myself and you keep developing yourself. And so they're very, very different, the interdependent and the um, the codependent. I talk about it a little bit from a developmental style. If you think about it, babies are codependent. They are completely dependent on their parents or their, their significant others to take care of them. Adolescents move in, adolescents in 20s, People move in, from a developmental point of view, they move into that independent where they figure out how to take care of themselves, but they're not yet ready to take care of somebody else, be interdependent. And then once we have matured sufficiently, we have that ability to say, I know who I am, I know where I start and begin, and you know, you begin, etc. I have empathy for your perspective, but I can say I have these flexible boundaries. Um, then you can have an interdependent style of relationship. Interesting. That was a lot, kind of a long answer, but hopefully that's <laughs> understandable. Well, like I said, the, the question got a much 
longer than, than I intended it to be, but it, it just kept developing in my head. <laughs> so, okay, so, so for my notes, which, which I was writing these down, what were the main uh, parts of a healthy relationship again? Boundaries, empathy, inner security? Did and, I miss and inner security. The three main qualities of a very of a healthy, mutually satisfying relationship that can be longstanding are empathy, inner security, and boundaries. Uh, boundaries is a favorite topic of mine, too. Setting them and maintaining them. <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, if you think about it, like uh, somebody who's codependent or in um, sort of an unhealthy, me-stellar relationship, they are going to think that they're responsible for somebody or that somebody is responsible for them. And in reality, we're actually responsible to people. We're not responsible for them unless they're our babies. Um, and they are responsible to us. In other words, if I say I am not going to have an affair, I don't. If I realize I'm falling out of love with you and I might be wanting to date someone else, I end my relationship with you first before I start the new one. Right? That's being responsible to you, not for you. Like that. See, you just have all kinds of new ideas I like. All right. Yeah, just lots of, yeah, it's a good thing nobody sees my notes after we finish these interviews. <laughs> <laughs> I do that too. I do these diagrams and arrows and <laughs> circles. Hey, my my original notes are all in red, and then I get a blue pen out when we do the interview, so so I can tell what was before and what was after. <laughs> so, oh, you're smart. That's very clever. You have to keep these things separated, <laughs> so, and and to see the thoughts that I had before we talked and the thoughts you know the after after we talked. So it, it all works out actually. So what about for people who think the whole concept of mind, body, spirit is just too woo-woo for them, and that seems to be the only way I can think of to, to explain what I'm trying to talk about, but they, they just think it's too out there for them. And, and like you well, said, a, a lot of people are using it. They're just calling it something different. So how, yeah. how do you do with that sort of thing? Because I, I can't imagine it doesn't ever come up. Yeah, I always look at who I'm talking to when I talk about it. My feeling is this. I think that when I talk about this mind, body, spirit, I like to make it really personal and specific and tangible as opposed to, I mean, you can, if you're talking with somebody who really believes in God and they really have a strong connection to God and they recognize that prayer is helpful or there's a spiritual sense in things, then it's easy. But, but often that's not who you're speaking to. And so when I have someone who doesn't necessarily have that belief system, I'll talk a little bit about something that I call the um, instinctive sensory guidance system, that each of us has an internal sensory guidance system. And this is how the spirit, mind, body thing works. And so here are our internal senses. What are our internal senses? Well, there are five senses, right? Smelling, seeing, tasting, touching, feeling, right? Okay. And almost anybody I've ever spoken to can tell me that they had a sense that something wasn't going to be right and it wasn't, or they were, had an intuition that they might do something, but they didn't pay attention to it, and then later they remembered they should have, right? So almost everybody recognizes that their senses actually do guide them. And so, and, and we have it in our language, right? Something doesn't smell right, 
something doesn't ring true, um, it left a bad taste in my mouth. Those are all ways in which our language is communicating to us that indeed our senses are constantly directing us. And if you're a person who believes in God, then I can say, so God gave us this internal sensory guidance system, and all we have to do is pay attention to it. If you're not a person who believes in God, you can still say that the human system has this internal sensory guidance system, and it will guide you if you just listen. And the usefulness of mindfulness in that regard is that mind is really good at making things happen, but mind sometimes is smaller than spirit, which in my instance when I talk about this is going to be heart. So if you have a general sense from one of your internal sensory guidance system or intuition that there's something you need that brings you joy or that you want to do, then mind can help you figure out the ways to make that happen. And your body is directly connected to your senses. Where do you feel them? You feel them in your body. And so that's this concept of an integrated spirit, mind, body idea. You have that connection between heart and body or spirit and body be directing you and mind making sense of it all. And I came to it mostly because I have worked in psych for many, many years and I would assist people. I worked a lot with people who had been traumatized and I would assist people to release those traumas and yet they still felt them sometimes. They were still triggered. And so I realized that there was not just a mind component or there was also this body component. And then additionally, what I noticed is that some people had a little tiny bit of trauma and they just never got over it. And other people had enormous amounts of trauma and they didn't seem to be that affected. And the thing that I noticed was really different is that people who had a general sense of connection to spirit, it doesn't necessarily have to be a religious God, but a general sense of spirit, one person who could say, what happened to you, it makes sense, one good person in their life, they did better. So that there is this sort of interconnected system that helps us be healthy. That's a spirit-mind-body relationship. Interesting. Interesting. You know, that, that sort of explains it. I've got a friend. We've been friends for 40 years, okay? So we've known each other since we were very little kids. <laughs> so and, and we, we're finally to a, a really interesting place where, where there's a mutual respect, there's a friendship, working together when, when I need something or he needs something, and we, we help each other with projects and this sort of thing. But it, it's funny because I was talking to another friend of mine, and there's certain topics that any time somebody brought them up, I, I would uh, unconsciously cringe. I never noticed I did this, but, but once she brought it to my attention, I noticed it. But this friend has gone through a lot of the same things, was raised around the same kind of mentality I was, and, and if I say something about the things that bother me, he just gets it exactly gets it, which I, I needed somebody like that I could talk to a whole lot more than I had ever realized. But the funny thing is I was, I was talking to this other friend of mine, and we were, we were talking about things, and, and she just kind of stops, and she says, you're not cringing. What are you talking about? <laughs> so when she says, normally when we talk about this kind of thing, or I try to, you just cringe. She says, and, and you haven't done that all day. And it was very true, and I realized that being able to just get it out you know, I, did, I didn't really need any, I, I, I didn't need anything big. I just needed to be able to get it out and for somebody to say, you know what, I get it. And and you're not crazy because you feel this way, which is always nice to hear. <laughs> you know, that kind of a deal. But it, 
the how much it helped was unbelievable. And like I said, until she pointed it out to me, I hadn't noticed it. But of course, now when we talk, uh, I there's certain things that that I really want to just get out. And it's it just it's amazing how much it helps to have that kind of a connection and to be able to to get things out that, like you said, there's there's traumas. It could be big, could be small, you know, depending on, on who we are and what we've been through and that sort of deal. But you just, you need a way to get it out and get it dealt with. Some, I've, I've had times that sometimes it feels like just getting it out of of your your mind, you know, releasing the words. Kind of like a lot of times people say that if something really bothers you, and I do this with, with friends and with clients, if there's something that, that really, really bothers you, I like to write about it. You know, don't don't type it. It's it's more powerful if you write it. Just get a piece of paper and just write out what you need to say. Sometimes just getting it out seems to make a difference, or it has for me. If, do you notice the same sort of thing? Absolutely. Well, the more that we keep something hidden within, it has power. And yeah. so for sure, getting it out is great. But it's also what I think what you're talking about is this whole idea of being seen, um, feeling real, being understood, it, that is actually a spiritual thing. From my perspective, I see that as a spiritual thing, that we aren't alone in the world, that there is someone else who gets what we're going through. And we don't always need someone to say, and here's what you should do instead. We just need someone to say, I got it, and good for you for hanging in, and or whatever, right? That sense of being, you know, honored and seen and it's really a very powerful experience. And I perceive that as more spiritual because it's much more of a heart emotional experience. Interesting. There's, it's funny because I, I was on a show one time and, and uh, I was on somebody else's radio show and I was somebody questioned me about Tantra. And, and I said something about, you know, there being such a, a deeper spiritual connection with your partner and, and is one of the, the things I think is a benefit of Tantra. And and they set me up because they had an atheist on the show. And I didn't know that. I didn't know she didn't believe in, in God or spirituality of any kind in any way. And, I mean, she pounced big time. <laughs> and it was something I had never thought about it from the perspective of a person who, who doesn't believe in God or any anything greater than yourself. But is that something that, that you have, have people that come in and, and talk to you and, and they just... Um, uh, have a negative or just a dismissive view of anything that you might classify as spiritual or on a spiritual level, that sort of a thing? I, I mean, I, certainly I've had individuals who have that perspective of the world. And um, what I usually do when I'm working with someone like that is talk to them about how do they find meaning then. And, and what's the purpose and what's their sense of things. And uh, rather than trying to prove my perspective, because, you know, that's not that beneficial, um, sure. I just try to find where is their sense of meaning and then apply that. Um, I, I I don't have that many individuals who come in um, who have that. And it may be because, you know, right there in bold letters, it says I do this whole integrative spirit, mind, body thing. So they're going to end up accidentally in my practice. Do you know what I mean? Because they're, they're, they're not, they aren't going to seek me out. I'm already speaking about something that they don't believe in. And so I think that that may be why I don't bump into it as much. But I do find that when I do bump into it, 
I just try to be really accepting of their perspective. And, and I often say to people, you know, whatever I'm saying that doesn't hold true for you or you don't believe in it, just throw it out. I, you don't have to buy into my belief system. My whole goal is to assist people in just being happier. So whenever there's information that I'm offering that doesn't quite fit into their system, I really encourage them to tweak it however they need to so that it's beneficial to them, as opposed to us getting into some sort of adversarial role, because that's not really that helpful. Um, and, and so that's kind of how I, I work with that. Very true. I, I've got several books I wrote that, that are nonfiction books, and, and I said, you know, there, there's a whole lot of suggestions and ideas. Don't implement them all. You don't need to. You shouldn't implement them all. Take the ones that work for you that fit what you're willing to do, what you're able to do, and then use those and move forward. Because, like I said, I mean, everything isn't going to apply to each person. So give them lots of things to work with and then find the ones that work and, and find a way to communicate between the two people to accomplish what you need to. Well, you know, and also one of the things that I've noticed is that when people have a really strong reaction to me, like a negative reaction, that then I'm probably saying something that really might be of value to them because that's one of the things that happens is sometimes when we first are given an opportunity to learn something, we have a very negative reaction to it, you know. So I encourage people to kind of look at what that negative reaction might be and what is it that seems so distasteful and, and how is that part of their paradigm shift? Like, how is that part of their paradigm, whatever I'm saying? And I, I don't know. There's always so many opportunities for people to grow and change. It's not always the way I intend for it to happen, but it happens, and that's really what we're looking for. Definitely. What do you think has been one of the hardest things about the work that you do? The, the hardest things about the work that I do? Um, so I think because I've worked for a long time as um, kind of a change maker, uh, I'm always looking to maintain my sense of faith and belief in what I'm trying to do. I see I see people hurting each other and being kind of being ignorant about it and not willing to make changes, and it makes me really sad sometimes. So um, I think that's probably been the hardest thing for me personally is to just keep recognizing that everybody's walking their own path, and it's my my job to try to offer what I can to be helpful. And if they don't want to make changes, then I have to kind of allow that, which is sometimes sad, right? I mean, obviously I have to allow it because it's not my life, it's not my business, but I think you understand what I'm saying. That's probably been the most yeah. difficult thing yeah, in the process. It's, it's so hard, especially when, you know, you know whether it's a client that, that you've gotten to know really well or, or if it's, you know, family members or friends or whatever, and, and you try to help them and they just won't do it, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, that is that is very difficult. So what, on, on a more positive note, what do you think has been the most rewarding thing about your work? Um, so I've been working as a, a counselor for a really long time. And uh, so I get to, I, I've been really lucky to see really lovely growth patterns. So I, I, um, I get to every now and then hear about how, what a difference I've made in a couple's life. I've been able to um, hear about a young person who I worked with as a child who's getting married and, you know, has gone on to be really happy. So these 
these ways in which I've really experienced these threads of uh, these golden threads that go out from my practice and have made these lovely changes in the world. And uh, that's been very joyful. Um, and it's been nice to, for me, to learn how to stand in the center of my happiness, regardless of what happens with the people in my practice. You know, so really getting that sense of self-inner security from what I think is valuable. So both of those things have been probably the most powerful thing. Okay, so if people would like to find out more about what you do and about your books, where can they find information about you on the Internet? So you can you can find me on the net. Thank goodness for the net. It's so cool. Um, I have a website. It's bethgeneris.com, B-E-T-H-G-I-N-E-R-I-S.com. And you can get my books there. You can, And I think I have like a 20% discount or something if you get them through there. You can also go through Amazon.com. And I think Barnes & Noble Online has them. And I think you can search for them under the title, Turning Me to E, The Art of Partnering with Mindfulness, or Turning No to On, The Art of Parenting with Mindfulness, or with my name. And I think it's under Dr. Beth Canaris, but it may also just be under Beth Canaris. They're, they're kind of funky about adding doctor or any credentials on Amazon. I discovered that with a client the other day. But um, I figure we can include we can always include it in our description of our books. <laughs> right. <laughs> Make sure people understand. It's uh, funny, right? Gosh, you know, anything to make life a little bit more difficult. Make sure that we remember who's in charge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they don't have uh, enough inner security. They need more inner security down there. Don't <laughs> they? And they certainly need to understand boundaries better and empathy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Amazon, unhealthy. <laughs> get me in trouble, get me kicked out of Amazon. <laughs> not be no, good. no, we're okay. They, I don't think they're going to get us. We're fine. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. You never know what they're going to do next. Oh, so tell me, tell me just, just in closing, and just to kind of give, give listeners a little food for thought, who is the ideal person to read your book? Who's going to benefit the most? Oh, interesting. So, um, so if we're talking about um, ideal person who's going to benefit the most, so I think anyone who is feeling like they have been repeating the same thing over and over again, here they are in the same situation they've been in before in their relationships, and they're just not, you know, like last time the uh, partner that they had did A, B, and C, so they made sure they didn't start seeing a person who had those qualities, A, B, and C, and yet here they are in the same situation. Somebody like that would be, they would do really well with the book. Um, I've had some, I've noticed a lot of millennials have found the book to be extremely helpful, and strangely, so have baby boomers. So there must be components in there that are really interesting to both. Um, a person who is really interested in gathering information because the Me To We book, you know, when I think about the two books, I wrote the parenting book first, and it really does talk a lot about how you become the kind of parent you are. It's not just a supportive book. So there's a lot of self-development that's in the, the um, No To On book. That's the parenting book. But the Me To We book actually has a lot of psychological information in it, written in a way that's very understandable, but 
psychological information, information about temperament, and then my system of math, which talks about the insecurity drivers. So there's just a lot of meat in that book. And that's the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book has a lot of really great techniques and ways that you can help yourself just be happy in your relationship. So people who'd be interested in a lot of meat like that, like they really want to learn more, would really like that book. And people who do have a comfort level with spirit would probably really like the book. All right. Well, I'm very glad you were able to be with me. And listeners, remember, you can always check the archive and listen to the show again in case you missed anything the first time. I like to pack a lot of information in an hour. (laughs) And if you'd like more information about Dr. Beth, I'll give you her, her website one more time. Dr. Beth Generis, and you spell her name, it's D-R, Dr. B-E-T-H-G-I-N-E-R-I-S dot com. And the show will be archived on my website. It'll go live as soon as the um, live show on Thursday night goes off air. And that will be at www.lovecoachjourney.com slash me to we m-e-t-o-w-e and you can go right there the show will be archived and you can listen to it anytime and always remember i'm also on the the largest uh podcast directories you can get it there just search for ready for love radio and uh, all of the recent shows are going to be there and I'm putting putting the older ones there as I get the time so and also if you want to feel free to click on the link on any of my promo images and also on my website to subscribe and then you'll be notified every time a new show goes live on the website so I look forward to having you with me next time on ready for love radio